This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I've forewarned you that this is uh, an unusual message. I like unusual to start with, right? But this one is particularly, like, I utilized the situation to do something that actually is very, very meaningful to me. And sometimes when I do something that's very, very meaningful to me, it could be sort of like bringing out your baby album and showing everyone in here as I can look what I looked like at the age of two. And then this is when we went to Mount Rushmore, you know, that type of a thing where everyone's like, oh, great. That's always the risk. At the same time, I've oftentimes found that when I work out of that that reservoir of passion, that which is stirring inside of me, and allow the Spirit of God to work through it, something beautiful can happen. So uh, this is called 28 Years, and yesterday was the 28th anniversary for Leslie and I. The number 28 and 29 are very, very significant. There's a coffee shop in town called, you know, Coffee 29, which all stems from this idea of 29, which comes from Job chapter 29. But that, you have to rewind the clock in my life quite a few years, and it's interesting because, you know, Mike Hans here too, it's a very significant number for him as well, because that was a bonding point for us when we were sort of studying together what manhood was and looking at the template of Job chapter 29. And now I look at you know, what Mike and Krista are doing and caring for vulnerable children and, and proclaiming their value uh, all over the world. But that was one of the things that led to four different adoptions for us. And we, Leslie and I named our marriage, I know this sounds very odd, uh, but we gave our, our marriage a name, and it's called Barracks 28. And so you have to recognize there's certain things that are happening just right now, simultaneously in my life, which I'm a numbers guy already, okay? And every number is very, very significant to me. But I'm celebrating my 28th wedding anniversary, and that means that I've concluded 28 years and I'm headed into 29. And so this is a significant year, and that's the way I look at it. I look at it as a foundation year for the next 20 And what is taking place, there's so many things. And for those of you that have been observing my life up close, I'm going through a metamorphosis as we speak in where I'm living, how I'm approaching ministry, how I'm bringing my family into this next season. It's a very, very significant season for me. And so the one challenge with today for me, since this is truly a message that I would say is dedicated first and foremost, of course, to Jesus Christ, but then maybe I should say secondly to my wife, and my wife is sick this morning. So it was somewhat of a challenge for me because this was supposed to be a surprise for her. And so what am I supposed to do? Say, get well now. Uh, and so it's tough not having her here. Praise God for modern technology. She'll still hear this. But still, it's a loss. But this is a body message. This is a meditation that isn't just for me. It just springs forth from some very, very intimate things in my life because Something did happen 28 years ago that radically altered my life, but it didn't just alter my life, it impacted many, many others. 
There was something about our love story that God chose to use. And it's always been sort of weird for me. I remember when we first were married, everyone wanted to hear our story. And, you know, it's not that I don't have a passing interest. It's like, so, uh, you know, how did you meet? Oh, that's neat. How did you propose? I might have that interest, but it's little, you know, in, in the whole scope of my life. I'm not that fascinated. I'm just mildly fascinated. And yet everyone was not mildly fascinated with our love story. Everyone was extremely interested in our love story to the point where we were on radio shows. We were being invited in to speak to schools, television shows. Everyone wanted to hear our love story. And I know this sounds strange, but I didn't really want to share it. I know that sounds sort of selfish on my part, but to me, a love story is rather personal, and it's not something that you just broadcast or stick in a book, which is what ended up happening. I thought the great way of solving our dilemma of being asked about our love story was to write it down in a book. I know, call me stupid. That didn't work very well, and it had a massive uh, backlash because once we put it in a book, now it exploded all over the world, literally. We were being invited on world tours to share, guess what, our love story. And so there's something about our love story that so fascinated a generation. And I understand what it is because I love our love story too. It is very, very precious to me. However, it's also very personal. And so as a result, we, Leslie and I have had this tension in our entire married life. Personal meets public. And how much do we share from that well of personal into the public sector? And welcome to being a pastor. That's a very, very similar tension where when my kids were young, I the kids are fantastic sermon illustrations, by the way. They really are good. However, there's a certain point where it's actually unhelpful to them to be a sermon illustration. They don't, you would think that every kid would want to be a sermon illustration, wouldn't you? You know, it's like, Dad, could you mention me this week? But they're not always like that. And they would prefer to be left alone and have their private life be private and have their challenges be private <laughs> as opposed to, oh, this is a great illustration, how my child worked through this challenge unto victory. What a great thing to share with the body or with the world in our case, because we have a far bigger audience outside of this room than we do inside this room. And so that tension is, has always been there. And yesterday I got some flowers for Leslie, and they were white and red. It was actually a pretty cool bouquet uh, that I got, if I'm going to admit it. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really nice looking. And it it was like a flashback. It would have been in a movie where I was pulled back to our wedding day those were the colors of our wedding day. They were white and red. And all the bridesmaids had this sort of velvet, reddish, maroonish color. And, and it was just, it was very festive. You know, it was, it was December 10th. You know, we're in Watley Chapel down in Denver, big stained glass windows, and it felt very Christmassy. And there's something very special about this time of year that if I allow it to happen, I can be brought to that fresh feeling, uh, that, that surreal atmosphere of a wedding day. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever uh, remembered, or just if those of you that are married, gone back. There's something surreal. It's almost like a magical hue to that day where you're sort of dizzied. You're, you're awake and alert, and you're walking through it. You're moving, right? You're healthy, right? You're excited. But it's somewhat of a blur, like you're floating, through the day. And it is 
remarkable. It is something that you never forget. And I can remember such, uh, so many details about that day, and there's other days in my life I can't remember a thing about them, right? But I can remember vivid details about that day. So I'm going to bring you back, not to that day necessarily, but to that season. Because that season, what it sprung forth into was one of the greatest seasons of testing my life has ever faced. My first years of marriage were not difficult because of my marriage. My marriage was the golden uh, jewel in the midst of it. It was the challenges I walked into because Leslie and I decided to stand for Jesus as our first inclination of being married. It's like, let's leverage this for the glory of God. We were being invited all over the world to speak. Let's stand strong for Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, but if you're not trained for handling spiritual warfare, it can really catch you off guard. And we were not aware of what we were stepping into, and it did catch us off guard. So 28 years. Barracks 28. So I wrote a, a book for Leslie on our 20th anniversary, and it's called Barracks 28. And uh, my subtitle is up there on the screen, the, cra- the Couple Crazy Enough to Still Hope. There's a reason for that. And what I'm going to do, it's, I'm going to call this like story time with Eric, but before we do that, I'll show you a few pictures. So this was our uh, wedding day. Up on the stage with us, uh, I was trying to tally it today because I used, I used to say the number 270 uh, as far as 270 years of marriage up on the stage from our parents and our grandparents all surrounding us and blessing. I was coming up with a number more like 240 to 250. I'm guessing because I, I don't remember all the wedding dates for everyone. But whichever way it was, it's a lot of strength that was standing there on that stage and blessing our marriage from the beginning. And I don't ever want to take that lightly. I don't want to take the things that God has given me and treat them uh, as if they don't matter. I want to build upon that foundation. It was such a a gift. There's Leslie and I. These are pictures, I think, that were taken with like an iPhone from our wedding album. So they're not very high quality, by the way. And the rest of the pictures I'm going to show you were taken because this is the day when they would when everyone would scrapbook so you would cut up pictures so I I don't have any like whole pictures Uh, so I have all these cut up pictures uh, in scrapbooks so uh, you'll notice the edges so uh, there's that piano picture doesn't that look like Leslie and I on Sunday morning Uh, and uh, but that's that's us I think even before we were married I'm not positive it's somewhere in that zone. Uh, there's some pictures that I found in the scrapbook. And uh, so that, that'll give you, that'll flash you back to the time period, okay? That's, I had a big poof of hair. Uh, so this is story time with Eric. I'm going to, out of uh, Barracks 28, there's like, I don't know, 20 chapters. And I'm going to read the, the sort of the intro and then the first two throughout the time. And so it'll be a little story time. That's like I said, this is very unorthodox, but there's a reason for it. I gave a Daily Thunder, I, I think it's going to be released uh, like eight days from now. And it triggered some thoughts inside of me that went along with this. And, uh, but I had to pre-record it because we're leaving for, uh, to go out of town in a couple days here. And so my mind has been chewing on that 
thought that I had. That particular message, I think, is called the awkward zone. And uh, it was talking about how we handle the difficulties in our life. And that's sort of what this is. When, when I think of marriage, I have only positive thoughts. It, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And yet what Leslie and I've gone through in our marriage has been very, very challenging. But it's not, again, because of our marriage. It's because of what we stood for in our marriage. And I think our marriage represents something that the enemy wants to destroy. If I was going to uh, you know, try and get inside the enemy's head, the other, there were other couples that stood for some of the similar things that we did back when we were first married, and they're all divorced. It's like all, you know, World War III opened up on these couples that dared to stand up for the sacredness of marriage, for the construct of godly marriage. It's sort of like, oh, you want to take me on, says the devil, and he hit and he hit hard. And so to me, it sort of makes sense in hindsight of why we went through so much trial in our young marriage, because I think the enemy wanted to take us out. But in a strange sense, it would have made, it would have been helpful to me to understand that going in. It's like, okay, you're about to be hit. I don't know if I would have liked hearing that. You're about to be hit with a sledgehammer. I mean, I don't know if that would have helped. However, to be armed and ready for the challenge, I'm going to give you one of the key truths that has been more important than maybe any other in me being able to appropriate a sledgehammer in my life. I'm going to call that sledgehammer difficulty. Now, when I say the word difficulty, almost every single one of us, you know, we, we sort of uh, tense up. We don't want difficulty. And here's what I would say. You do want difficulty if you're going to get in shape. No one gets in shape without difficulty to their muscles. If you don't put your muscles through tension, through some kind of trial, they'll never grow. You don't cardiovascularly get in shape by sitting on a couch. You get cardiovascularly in shape by exercising, by, by, by actually tiring out your body so that your body can respond and grow stronger. So let's read a word before in Barracks 28. I wanted to give you a peek inside Barracks 28. I'm talking to you guys, by the way. Forgive me up front for the brevity of the tour. One of the privileges of living in Barracks 28 is that I am kept surprisingly busy, and so unfortunately for this book, I don't have much time for being a tour guide. Just a little FYI, Barracks 28 is the name of Leslie's and my marriage, which today I'm thrilled to announce has just turned 20 years old. So obviously this was eight years ago. So I wanted to celebrate by having an open house. No, we don't actually live in Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. That is a common misunderstanding, since that is where the original Barracks 28 was. So I can understand your confusion on that point. Again, Barracks 28 is the name of our marriage. It's not the name of our hometown. You will quickly notice how snug this barracks is. You are certain to think that all those memories cannot possibly fit into our 20 short years together. But alas, they have. It's tight quarters for all our many adventures. But though sometimes it is difficult to find a bunk for our next major event to sleep on, we love the intimacy that the smallness of the room affords. Before we enter, there are a few things that are important to understand about Barracks 28 prior to stepping foot inside it. For many, a great love story would be described as a peaceful hermit's cottage hidden in the veil of ease and comfort and wholly untouched by the struggles and battles of this life. 
And whereas I agree that such a love story would be outwardly appealing, it would be missing something. It would be missing the one necessary ingredient that makes love stories grand. And that one ingredient, though it is often deemed the enemy of romance, is in fact the great advocate of it. Difficulty. Leslie and I have had more difficulty in 20 years than most marriages would have in 20 lifetimes. And as a result, we are possibly the happiest couple on earth. You see, difficulty is not the damper to beauty, but the catalyst to it. Like the torrential winds that make the oak tree strong or the heat and pressure that make the diamond shine, difficulty is the great gift to a marriage. Its fragrance is not of the bath and body works uh, variety. Difficulty. Leslie and I have had more difficulty in 20 years. Uh, some, uh, I don't know if this is a repeat. I can't quite tell, but we'll keep going. Leslie and I have had more difficulty in 20 years than most marriages would have in 20 lifetimes. And as a result, we are possibly the happiest couple on earth. You see, difficulty is not the damper to beauty, but the catalyst to it. Like the torrential winds that make the oak tree strong or the heat that pressure that makes the diamond shine. This is really odd. I'm sorry, guys, that the way I copied and pasted, I'm not sure how this worked, how I can copy and paste three things uh, that, that way. Its fragrance is not of the Bath and Body Works variety, and though it is an acquired taste, it is the most supremely delicious odor to the soul, especially when that soul chooses to welcome it instead of run from it. Leslie and I do not live in a peaceful hermit's cottage, but that isn't to say our life isn't marked by an extraordinary peace. We don't live hidden in the veil of ease and comfort, but that isn't to say our life isn't marked by the most divine heavenly comfort. And no, we do not have a marriage untouched by the struggles and battles of this life, and yet I wouldn't trade places with one other man in all the world history. I don't want a cozy romantic hideaway. I want Barracks 28. What you're about to see is precious to me and Leslie. It is our life. For a couple that is always smiling, always laughing, and always singing, I realize you may have expected something quite different than a barracks. There may be a bit of acclimation period for your souls as you enter. I mean, it's Eric and Leslie Ludi, the authors of When God Writes Your Love Story and When Dreams Come True. You expected flowers, rhymes, and the endless whispering of sweet nothings, and you probably didn't expect Barracks 28. How could we, you ask, name our love story Barracks 28? When you step into our humble abode, you will see why we call it Barracks 28. We actually live in a war zone. We, the Ludi lovebirds, are, well, how do I say this? We are <clears throat> not liked by everyone. For those of you that are fond of us, you may not understand this, but after all, but all we are, after all, we are so nice, so smiley, and so kind. But Leslie and I constantly hear the cacophony of threats, jeers, and taunts outside. Over the years, false accusation has been spray-painted on our marriage like graffiti, and betrayals have shaken our little abode like bomb blasts. Now, please don't think that this is some plea for pity. There is no need for pity. We love our life. This is the very stuff that has made our love story so amazing. We love our cozy marriage in, this, in the midst of all this danger. We cherish our Barracks 28. Leslie and I love the stories of suffering Christians before us. Wormbrand in Romania, Dibler in Indonesia, the Ten Booms in Holland are some of our favorites. We have read and reread these stories and hundreds like them. We cherish the triumph that flows out of difficulty when Christ supplies the grace. Leslie and I have a special spot in our heart for Betsy and Corey Tenboom. Their story, though it may not be the most dramatic of all the amazing tales to us, has been probably the most endearing. Leslie and I named our marriage after the Tenboom's actual home during World War II, for they really did live in Barracks 28 at the actual Ravensbrück concentration camp in Nazi Germany. It was in this death camp that over 900,000 women were ruthlessly killed. 
And it was in this place of difficulty that Betsy and Corey demonstrated to Leslie and me how to transform the challenges of life into the true strength and beauty of life. Ravensbrook was a place of despair for tens of thousands of women who had nothing to hope for in life but a miserable death. But it was said that Barracks 28 was the place crazy enough to still hope. That simple statement means so much to us, the place crazy enough to still hope. In the midst of a generation where the heavenly beauty of married love is nearly lost, Leslie and I desire to be known as that crazy couple enough, a couple crazy enough to still hope. This is not just a short tour of our last 20 years, but it is a tribute to the one who has shared this beautiful battle-worn barracks alongside me. I wrote this for Leslie, my love, my bride, my companion, my dearest friend, my confidant, my constant encourager, my girl. Corey Ten Boom was not alone in Barracks 28. God gave her Betsy. Leslie, you have been my Betsy. So the word difficulty, I don't know why it is in our dialect such a negative word. But I, I could ask you, if we, I gave a pop quiz on if difficulty is a positive or a negative word, I could almost guarantee that 100% of us would lean towards negative. Part of that has to do with our culture and our upbringing. When a word is presented as a negative word throughout your entire life, it's sort of hard to conclude otherwise. And yet, the idea behind difficulty in Scripture is going to be presented very different than the way our mind naturally responds to it. So if you were to say, to God, is difficulty a negative or a positive? Well, that's a trick question, isn't it? And because the enemy is up to no good in this world, he is seeking whom he may devour, he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So he is a cause of difficulty in our life. And if I were to say, well, is God supportive of that? I'd say, well, God is not a supporter of what the enemy is doing. However, God will take what the enemy does, what he wields to create hazards, difficulties, trials, tribulations in our life, and he will work them for good. And so if you were to look at it through that lens, you're going to say, well, so when difficulty comes, God works good in my life through it. I become stronger through difficulty. Huh. So difficulty to a, a believer, whether the difficulty comes from Satan himself or from just the natural trials that emerge in life, actually is a positive thing to each of us. So I say difficulty, the one necessary ingredient that makes love stories grand. So technically, I'm not really talking about love stories in general. You don't have to have a love story to appreciate this message. However, it's a truth. When you think of a great love story, you don't think of difficulty as making it a great love story. You think of the absence of difficulty. That's what would make a great love story, when in actuality, that's not true. When a couple goes through difficulty together and overcomes it in accordance with the grace of God, they grow closer together and the warmth of their intimacy expands. So what you've done is you've actually created a greater love story. How? Through difficulty. So this is a quote uh, you know, from my uh, well-known work, Barracks 28. Though difficulty is often deemed the enemy of romance, it is in fact the great advocate of it. So it seems at first blush to be the enemy of a love story, beauty, romance, when in actuality it's the greatest fan. It is the greatest cheerleader to that romance. 
So I'm going to take that word difficulty and I'm going to change the way I said it. Last time I said love stories, so I'm going to change it to be more applicable to all of us. Difficulty, the one necessary ingredient that makes life stories grand. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a movie that doesn't have any difficulty in it. Every great storyline is based on the premise of difficulty. And so what you do if you're an author is you're going to bring your character into difficulty. In fact, you're going to purposely do it. Doesn't that sound terrible if you're an author? I mean, how unloving of an author can you be to take your main character, who you love, and bring him into difficulty? In fact, you're going to bring him into impossible circumstances because the more impossible, the better the resolution. And that is a principle of storytelling. We have been brought into the ultimate storyline, and yet we want a story that is boring. We want it to be, uh, have, have, be cleansed of all challenge, all trials, all tribulations, when in actuality, God wants to write a great story. He wants us to be leading characters in grand adventures. And so the difficulty is the one necessary ingredient that makes life stories grand. And so this is a quote adapted from my other quote. I think you'll like it. Though difficulty is often deemed the enemy of beauty, zest, and happiness... It is, in fact, the great advocate of it. So in other words, some of you are after beauty in life, zest, happiness in life, and actually the great sponsor of this is difficulty. I, I know that sounds so ridiculous that I would even say it out loud. It's like, Eric, are you, are you, do you actually mean this? I mean, you don't actually think we're buying this, do you? I hope you do. Like I said, I have been married 28 years and the greatest moments of strengthening in my marriage have not come from when things went easily for me, but when things went difficult for me. When I had to walk through a challenge, that's actually what sponsored the growth, not the ease. On the human side of my life, I crave the ease just like you do. I don't want drama. I don't want challenge. I don't want trials. And then I go to the book of James and it says, consider it pure joy, Eric. Pure joy. That word for pure joy is like this all-inclusive type of word. That it's like, in, it is the most extreme joy. It is the greatest thing that could happen to your life, Eric. Consider it pure joy when, dot, dot, dot. When, when, when what? When everything goes easy for me? No, consider it pure joy when you face trials. And then it says of many kinds, there's a lot of different ways you could define that last statement. But basically what it means is any and every trial you could ever face, consider those your greatest joy. Now, for most of us, if we were to go around and say, what is your greatest joy? Let's, let's, let's share what you consider your greatest joy. What would, what would bring joy to your life? Most of us, even though we're solid biblically would not land there unless we were trying to be super spiritual here. It's like, and I just uh, really love trials. Because it isn't our natural man. That's not how our natural man thinks when in actuality, this is how God wants us to think. This is the framework of thought that God wants us to have that we consider it true joy, pure joy, when we face trials of many kinds. That trial is a blessing to us. We might as well enjoy it. So here's our scripture, James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, that's, that's us, count it all joy 
when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So this is what my podcast was about, which is in about eight days, and it was about the comfort zone versus the awkward zone. And if I were to give you a choice between the comfort zone or the awkward zone, have you ever been in the awkward zone? Have you ever gone up to someone uh, to share the gospel with them, and they're not too excited about hearing it? And you sort of fumble over your words, and you're, you're, you're a little nervous, and it just doesn't come out very well and clearly? Awkward. That's called the awkward zone. And there's none of us that like that zone. We're not like in that moment going, oh, this feels good. In fact, we're sort of just wanting to go hide in a closet, right? And act like that didn't happen and hope we can just sort of erase this memory from from our past. Welcome to Christianity, people. Christianity is in the awkward zone. That's how we live it. Every commission that Jesus is giving us is to go against a social grain. It goes into that territory. Your natural man retreats from it. I get that. I understand that. So does mine. However, you are being invited into what we could call the awkward zone for a lifestyle. In other words, it translates as foolish to the world. And God says, welcome to my world. He says, are you willing to come follow me? To do that, you need to deny yourself. You know that cool guy? that likes to look good to everyone, that likes to sound intelligent to everyone. Yeah, you need to deny that. Pick up your cross. Yeah, that one device that kills you, uh, that actually makes you look like a criminal in the world's eyes. Yeah, pick that up and come follow me. Like, uh, there has to be a different way than this. Uh, Wait a minute, let's think this through. You see, the American Christian culture has done everything it can to sanitize that version of Christianity. We don't want to go in that direction. I like to look good to people. It's a natural bent I have. I don't want to look odd, funny, weird. That isn't something we all desire to achieve. When you stand before your mirror in the morning and you're getting ready, I don't know how many of you go, hmm, I look too normal. I look too good. I would like to look worse. In other words, we all want to have our best face on. We want to have the best smell on. We don't want to be uncouth, buck-toothed. We want to be pleasing to the world. And I don't see anything wrong with taking care of yourself and having good hygiene. I think that's Christian, right? I think we should be pleasant. I think we should reveal the kingdom of heaven in and through the way we care for ourselves. However, we need to recognize that we have a fragrance that God's like spritzing on us. We like try and smell good, and then get right before we leave, God goes, you represent me. We're like, oh, well, that's not going to translate well to some people out there. It's like, I know. But this is what it means to follow me. And so we choose to give up a comfort zone and accept an awkward zone as our life. We all have a natural bent, just like we do with the word difficulty, to avoid it. And we all have a natural bent as believers to avoid awkward and to enter comfort. One of our greatest ambitions in life, even though we don't say it out loud, we say it indirectly, is comfort. We want comfort. And it's, it's interesting because I think most of us would probably say happiness. That's, that's like the, the human reasoning right at its core. 
But comfort also says it. It says it in a way that sort of includes happiness. And I think it's, so comfort zone, I think, is a pretty good way of describing natural man. That's what we all want. And this is what we have to deny at a certain level. It does not mean that we will not have comfort. That is a misnomer. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have to be willing to let it go. And you have to accept the awkward zone for your life and then let God make up the difference. As you give up human comfort, you're going to receive something greater, which is heavenly. And that's why the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. Because he's meeting the deepest needs of our soul that we are relinquishing the natural man version of so that we can receive the heavenly version of it. So the principle of the awkward zone. Grace is supplied when in the awkward zone. Grace is not supplied for the comfort zone. Now, in eight days, you can listen to my podcast on this, and I'll do a deep dive on this. However, when you go into the awkward zone, what do you need? You need help. You need grace. You need words to speak. You need wisdom for the moment. Everything about ministry is challenging. I can't tell you how many times. It'd probably be a fascinating message. If I started walking through all my awkward moments in ministry, like my top 10 most awkward, most difficult moments. Uh, I remember I was in an uh, arena, uh, Gonzaga Arena in Spokane, Washington. Uh, 6,000 people in the audience. And I'm up on the stage by myself with a microphone. And the power goes out. This is a closed-in arena. There's no windows. Okay, it's at night anyways. Pitch black, but my microphone works. And for 10 minutes, I had to talk to 6,000 people with the lights off. And it ranks up there where it's like the awkwardness of it. What am I supposed to do? Run? I you know, I'd run into a speaker. I mean, I can't even see where I'm at. And it was sort of intimidating. It's a very challenging moment. And yet God leveraged that. If I were to talk about some of the most impacting moments of ministry that I've had, I'd say those 10 minutes in Gonzaga... Uh, arena were actually some of the most, ten, most powerful 10 minutes of ministry I may have had. That doesn't make any sense. However, what did I need in that situation? When you are in the awkward zone, you get access to something called grace. When you are in the comfort zone, guess what? You don't get grace. Grace is not given for the comfort zone. Grace is given for the awkward zone. You want God's grace, where do you need to go? You go into the awkward zone. You go where he is leading you. And if you go in that direction, you get the supply of grace. All right, guys, here's uh, the first chapter of the book. We're still doing story time with Eric, okay? Just in case some of you thought we were done. Oh, no. The fleas. When Corey and Betsy first arrived in Barracks 28, they found that it was infested with fleas. Not only was it the famed death camp, but it was the famed death camp with millions of fleas flourishing in their very barracks. Betsy took Corey by the hand and softly asked Corey to thank God with her for Barracks 28. Corey at first balked. To thank God in such circumstances seemed impossible. But they, had the, but they began to thank God for everything that he had done. They had each other. They had miraculously been able to steal in Corey's Bible, which is an extraordinary story in and of itself. They got a Bible into a concentration camp. They had a bunk together, and they were still alive. Okay, let's give thanks for these things. Then Betsy thanked God for the fleas, but Corey could not join in that prayer. She refused to thank God for fleas. 
But Betsy pled with her to remember how God can take everything and use it in our lives for his good. And then after a bit of pondering, Corey finally complied and thanked God for the fleas. In every juncture of our life, there are things that are easier to thank God for, like health. You know, if you're healthy, it's like, okay, I can thank God for health. Yeah, you know, I have a roof over my head. However, what we tend to uh, haltingly give thanks for is, are things like fleas. However, we're supposed to give thanks in all things, which is what Betsy is going to appeal to Corey in this situation. It's like, but Corey, we're supposed to give thanks for all these things. Fleas? Now, most of you would be in agreement with Corey. It's like, I can give thanks for these other things because they're good things. But to give thanks for fleas, I, I cannot make myself do it. And yet, you know, Betsy's argument was pretty strong. And Corey finally agreed, okay, I'm going to thank God for the fleas. Leslie and I were married three weeks when the same test came our way. We had each other. We had the word of God. We had a bunk together. And we were very much alive. But what do we do with these fleas? I had spied out an amazing house in a gorgeous lake in Michigan. It was used as a bed and breakfast during the summer months, and so during its off-season, a young couple like ourselves could actually rent it out. It was a great situation. But there was one problem. It wasn't really winterized. We arrived in early January of 1995, straight from our honeymoon. We were flying high and desperately in love. And right around our arrival date at the Lakeside Lodge, someone else moved in. I guess they didn't realize that a newly married couple typically prefers a bit of privacy. There were seven bedrooms in the place, but they didn't take one of the bedrooms. They moved into the fireplace. It was a family of raccoons. And come to find out, 98% of all fleas that survived through the winter survived by living symbiotically with raccoons. Whether that is true or not, it sure did explain our flea infestation. If you walked across the wood floor of the vast living room in white socks, at any given time, you could count 17 fleas on your right sock alone. We had fleas, thousands upon thousands of them. We had raccoons beating against the piece of plywood that covered the fireplace. We had negative temperatures for weeks on end, and we had dot, 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 fun. Now, I need to admit that we approached the fleas a bit more like Corey than like Betsy. It took us a bit to thank God for the gift of those fleas. Corey and Betsy found that it was because of the fleas that the German officers left Barracks 28 alone, which allowed them to hold nightly Bible studies without threat of danger. It was the fleas that protected this sacred time of fellowship every night. For Leslie and I, we found the fleas supplied us our very first trial. And after 20 years, which is now 28, but this is still our first trial, that first trial is still very precious to us. It taught us how to work together through difficulty. It taught us how to thank God in all circumstances, and it taught us how to laugh together. Leslie, our love was so innocent back then. We didn't know what challenges lie around the corner, and it was a good thing, for we didn't care about what was to come. We knew we had each other, and we had Jesus. And Leslie, I'll never forget discovering your spunk in that time. You are a fighter. Through all of our adventures, you have never stopped swinging your sword, and oh, how I cherish your resolve to see Jesus come out on top in each and every circumstance. Dear Lord, Thank you for those fleas. So there's a word in Scripture in the New Testament which doesn't sound that impressive. Consolation. 
Now, if any of you win a consolation prize, you don't go and brag about it, right? Because it's usually, you didn't come in the first place, second place, or third place, maybe even seventh place, right? It's the extras. And everyone gets their like little ribbon at the end to sort of show that they participated. And that's like a consolation prize, almost like the way you look at it is they pat you on the back and give you a little hug around the shoulder to say, well, you tried hard. And hey, no one wants a consolation prize. So it's funny when God uses this word in the New Testament, and the way he uses it doesn't sound like a negative. It doesn't sound like a little pat on the shoulder. It actually sounds like something better than first place. And it is. You see, the consolation of heaven is actually what we all want. And yet, to get that consolation, you probably are you know, catching the drift of this message, it comes in and through difficulty. That's how we access the consolation. So I have a name for it up on the screen. It's the reward of suffering. It's like if you're willing to walk through suffering, you're going to get something in that suffering. It's called the consolation. Now, I know that doesn't sound good because of your American mindset and the English language towards that word. However, biblically speaking, this is what you want. More than anything else, you want this. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So when something is increasing in our life called sufferings, difficulties, trials, tribulations, there's something else, mathematically speaking, that actually increases simultaneously, and that is the consolation of Christ. And what's interesting is mathematically speaking, no matter what weight comes on in the suffering category, the consolation is always greater. So no matter where you're at in suffering, what you have with Christ is actually superior to what you're going through in this natural man body. I remember I was in one of those stretches of what I've called long suffering, where something had been pressing down on me for over four years, every day, and it was so painful and so heavy. It was like some days it would be where I would, I would need to literally just go out and walk to try and work through it because it was like a, a, a dagger inside of my, my, my gut. It, it hurt so bad. And I couldn't just remove it. It wasn't a physical thing. It was a spiritual thing with just weights and heaviness. And it wouldn't just go away. And so many times, I, you know, like Paul with his thorn, I prayed three times that it would be removed. Well, I prayed 3,000 times that this would be removed, Right? Every one of us, when we're going through a challenge, wants the weight gone. We want the heaviness gone. We want the trial. We want the difficulty to be, to be removed. And it was one of those key defining moments in my life. I still remember where I was, too. I remember I was in our neighborhood, which is a mile loop. And I remember where I was in front of what driveway I was in front of. And I had the clear understanding of something. It was like a conversation with God that I couldn't actually put into words. But if I did, it would sound sort of like this. Eric, I can remove this. But I want you to recognize that warmth of intimacy, that closeness you have with me right now is because of the presence of this. It was this exact principle. The sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Eric, do you want me to remove that difficulty? And this intimacy, this warmth of closeness you have with me would be lessened. Because the reason you have such an abundance of grace right now is because of the abundance of your sufferings. 
And this is what I said. Okay, you could call me a kook. But I actually told God to not take the difficulty away. Because what I have in my relationship with Christ, I don't want to lose any of that. It is far more precious to me. So even though on the natural man's side there is an ache, on the spiritual man's side there is a consolation. This is two verses later. Paul says, As you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Now this is that mathematical principle. It's sort of like if you're looking at it mathematically, it would have one of those greater than signs, uh, you know, sort of that alligator mouth, crocodile mouth, I don't know what you called it uh, when you were going through math. And you have the sufferings over here, and then you have the crocodile mouth showing that God's consolation is greater. And that is always the mathematical equation in your soul. You just need to remember that. You need to get excited, which is why James says, consider it pure joy. Why? Because the crocodile mouth is open. And you have something greater than any difficulty. And when that difficulty comes, it unlocks the treasure chest of grace in your life. You want consolation. Yeah, I do. I want consolation. I want, I want whatever that consolation is. The way you get it, Eric, is by embracing, by cherishing, by rejoicing in these trials. Because when you are weak, my strength is made perfect. That is how it works. Crocodile. I should have called this message crocodile mouth. I don't know if that would have felt as romantic, though. Paraclesis. It's the consolation. Now, for those of you that know the uh, Koine Greek, that is very close to another word. And I'm going to bring up that other word. I'm not going to give it away what it is. Uh, but paraclesis is the consolation. Now, see if I can give a definition for this. Because like I said, the word doesn't translate well to us in the English language. But this is what it means biblically. Help and support that is very near. And very ready to supply strength. Intimate aid. Heart-level encouragement. The supply of deep comfort. If any of you have ever tasted that consolation, you know how precious it is. Whenever you've gone through extreme suffering, which I know many of you in here have gone through extreme sufferings, and oftentimes you'll say to people, it's like, wow, God, God's grace just sort of flooded the situation. And it's hard to describe what that is. It's just, it's there. It's like you're buoyed in the midst of a difficulty. And that consolation is something that is so precious that we oftentimes, because the enemy's going to constantly be poking at the difficulties, like, oh, okay, you can't handle this. Look how miserable this is. He's constantly talking about that. The Spirit of God talks about something different. Embrace this. Rejoice in this. Cherish this. This is where, you will this is where I can supply you that heart comfort, that deep soul comfort. So, uh, guys, story time with Eric has one more chapter, all right? The lack. This is, this is right in the beginnings of our marriage. And what difficulties we are going to face as a couple following this. I mean, it's almost laugh out loud that I would read this as a symbol or an example of a challenge because this is not a challenge, right? But any of us that have grown in grace know that when we're first skiing, first learning to ski on a bunny hill, it's hard. Then we go on to a green, and it's like, whoa, terrifying. When you get to a blue, you look back at your green and your bunny hill, and it's pathetic, right? I mean, it's so easy. It's like, I could do that in my sleep. 
And God is growing you in grace. So you look back on some of your miniature trials, but at the time, that was Everest. That was the biggest trial your soul had ever faced. And what did you need? You needed grace for it. And this story is very dear to me. Okay, I'm just about to share with you guys something that is so close uh, in me because this is at the beginnings of where God began to acquaint me with his presence in difficulty. I lived a charmed life and so did Leslie. In fact, I, there were times I, I felt sort of guilty growing up because my life was almost too good. Like we, Both of us come from very strong families. Both of us come from parents, having parents that invested deeply into us and showed us the way of the king and introduced us into an intimate walk with Jesus. To whom much is given, much is required, right? And so I was given a lot. But that doesn't mean I'm excluded from being built the way God builds his saints. And though I was entrusted with a lot, I was still a little dim-witted when it came to what we're talking about today, which is the important role that difficulty plays in the formation of strength. The lack in that first year of marriage, Barracks 28 was not yet named Barracks 28. Technically, we didn't have a name for it, but if we had, we certainly would have referred to it with nomenclature, much more innocent and sweet. I was 24, Leslie was 19. We were young, innocent of much, struggling to understand things like insurance premiums and personal tax returns. You guys remember your first year of marriage and getting those things? It's like, what in the world? What's an insurance premium? We had been searching high and low for another place to live, but the $300 a month we were paying for our flea-infested lodge by the lake was hard to beat. By the way, for those of you that see that up on the screen, you're like, that's a good deal. It was seven bedrooms by the lake. Yeah, the lake just happened to be frozen over. The whole house was boarded up, and we had raccoons in the chimney. I think $300 was about right. I had a job. It didn't pay a lot, but we had something. But a fixed income is exactly that, fixed. Our original budget included enough to rent this $300 place by the lake. We maybe had a $200 buffer each month. But those of you who are married know how likely a buffer is to still exist come the end of the month. Everything we looked at in the newspaper was out of our price range. The closest thing to our $300 current rent price was $550. So we went and checked the place out. It was situated next door to a known drug dealer in the area. And let's just say there was a reason why it was the cheapest place for rent in all of Kalamazoo, Michigan. There was no way I was going to leave my wife there every day while I was at work. The next best option came in around $700. It was small, but it was clean, so we snagged it up. We didn't technically have the money for it, but as a new husband, I had to do something to move us into a more viable living place. After all, a house full of raccoons and fleas is certainly fun, but not ideal for the long haul. This move to West Main Street was amazing for the two of us. Leslie fixed up the place the way Betsy fixed up Barracks 28. She made it heaven. Without a dime to spend, she somehow made it beautiful. It was ours, and it was, our, it was without fleas. But this move to West Main Street also came with some new challenges. We had absolutely zippo in the bank, in our pockets or in our catch-all drawer in the kitchen. We used everything we had to make it through each day. Corey Tenboom used to tell the story of her vitamin bottle. Well, in the concentration camps, Corey somehow had a Bible and a vitamin bottle. These were her daily sustenance, and neither emptied throughout her entire time. As strange as it may sound, her vitamin bottle never emptied. Like the widow's oil, it never ran dry. And she shared it with all the, the women in the barracks, too. And her vitamin bottle never ran out. It's extraordinary, right? 
Like the widow's oil, it never ran dry. 20 years of marriage has shown me something, which is now 28, just in case. You know, I just want you guys to remember that. Those eight years were hard-earned. You know, I don't want to just not get credit. 20 years of marriage has shown me something very similar. In Barracks 28, I can testify that neither the truth of God's word nor the vitamin bottle have ever run out. But to say it was easy to have nothing in the bank nearly every day for our first year of marriage wouldn't be honest. It was extremely difficult. As a man, I yearned to supply richly for my new bride, to adorn her in jewels, and to ensure that she was clothed in the most posh clothing. But I simply couldn't do it. I was a romantic with a limp. I had big dreams, but God had given me something precious. He was teaching me how to give my wife something even better than earthly substance. I'll never forget the great test of 1995. Our friends were coming in from Colorado for a visit. It was the first time any of our friends from Colorado had come for a visit since we got married back in December. It was a big deal. Somehow we paid for the gas to and from Chicago to pick them up from the airport. We arrived back at our little condo and were filled with such excitement. They toured the place and we showed them the makeshift guest room. They asked for an ironing board to spruce up their clothes. We obliged. Everyone was smiling and then it happened. Leslie grabbed the hot iron to put it away, but it was still on. She burned her hand. It wasn't really a terrible burn, but it needed some ointments. We had $8 to our name. This was the money that we needed to carry us through this entire week with our guests. And our guests had no idea that we didn't have any way of feeding them. Without hesitation, I hopped into the car with my friend Ryan and we headed off to the drugstore to pick up some burn medication. All $8 was spent on a singular bottle of ointment. Gulping, I hopped back into my red Camry and began the drive back to our snug little condo on West Main. On the trip home, a policeman noticed that my right front headlight was out and pulled me over. He gave me a ticket and said I wouldn't need to pay the $100 fine if I got the headlight fixed in this next week and had a policeman sign off that the work was done. Gulping, I started back up the car and drove home. Leslie and I clung to each other that night and prayed. It was a desperate form of praying. The fleas were a test, but this constant niggling ache of having nothing was an entirely different sort of trial for our marriage. But like the fleas, it brought us together. Corey and Betsy used to share the same pillow in their barracks 28 bunk. They didn't do this because it was more pleasant. They did it out of necessity. So tight were the women packed inside that building. Corey and Betsy's noses would often be touching throughout the night, and they shared each other's breath. This is our marriage. In many ways, you could call our marriage a shared pillow and a shared breath. In nights like this, Leslie and I learned to breathe our prayers in unison and often in tears. It was the following day that I picked up the mail. In the mailbox was a letter from Leslie's Aunt Pat. A financial surplus had come into her life, and she wanted to share a bit of it with us. There was a check for $100 inside that envelope. Startled and bewildered by the timing of this strange gift, I held back the tears, walked through the living room, passed my house guests, and found Leslie in the kitchen. I tapped her on the shoulder and silently pointed to the letter. I unfolded it for her to see the check. And together, in the sacred silence of that moment, we shared the joys that only those that share a common pillow and a common breath can fully appreciate. Tears streamed down both our faces. That same day, our dear friends, the Staples, had invited us over for a barbecue. They wanted to meet our Colorado friends, and so with joy, we drove to their house in our red Camry. Doug Staples, the father, overheard some kerfuffle about Eric being pulled over last night by a policeman. He silently slipped out the door into his driveway and looked at my car. The next day, he went into town and bought the parts and then called me up on the phone. Eric, Doug said, it appears that I have the parts to fix your camera here at my house. Why don't you four come over for dinner again tonight and I'll get things fixed for you.
Only God can turn empty pockets and an impossible situation into such a picture of his faithfulness. Leslie, we, had a, we have shared a common pillow and a common breath for 20 years now. 28. And all I can say is thank you for allowing me so close. Thank you for breathing the breath of heaven alongside me. And thank you for being willing to live a life of dependence. I'm not a rich man in a material sense, but I've found that material riches is not the secret to lasting love and marital bliss, but that the secret is simply having Jesus. So here's our word for consolation in the Greek. Paraklesis. And I'm going to reread the definition. Help and support that is very near and very ready to supply strength, intimate aid, heart-level encouragement, the supply of deep comfort. Now I'm going to give a word that looks very similar, as it should, because they're the same construction, and that is parakletos. So I'm going to go back so you can see this word, paraklesis, the consolation. Now look at this word, parakletos. That's the helper. That's the comforter. That's the Holy Spirit. So when you begin to recognize what it is we are receiving in that time of difficulty, in that time of trial, we are receiving something known as paraklesis. We are receiving something that the Holy Spirit is bringing. He is bringing a deep comfort. He himself is present with us. He is bringing the very life of Jesus to the situation. The very glory of God fills the house in these circumstances. Somehow, I just lost uh, my keynote. Uh, Oh, it's up there now? All right, it's thinking about it. Our projector, oh, there it is. So listen to the definition that I have of the Holy Spirit, of the parakletos, the very present help in times of trouble the very ready supply of strength, the intimate aid of the Father, the one who delivers the heart-level encouragement, the one who supplies deep comfort. So when I say that there is something you really, really want, I could say it's paraklesis. It's the consolation. How do you get that? You get that, mathematically speaking, when difficulty or trial come, when you step into the difficult zone and the awkward zone, as I was calling it before, when you have the trials of this life, God says, and I have something for you. You see, instead of going to this world to try and find comfort, if you will turn to me, I supply something that will meet your deepest needs. You will never lack everything you need for life and godliness. I will supply And he supplies it in and through these circumstances. Almost every single one of us, if not 100% of us, would want to avoid trials. If If you knew that there was a trial today and you could avoid it, you would probably go out of your way to avoid the trial. And I'm not necessarily saying that is wrong. That if there was a pothole in the street, you should just run right through it and see if your car can survive it. That isn't the wisdom of heaven either. If you know something is up ahead, you would steer around it. However, there are certain things that you can't steer around, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that which life is going to deal out to us, that is meddled through the hand of God, through his providence. And you are going to encounter difficulty, trials, and challenge, not because God doesn't care about you, but you will discover the care of God in and through it. The revelation of God's nearness 
is more understood when we are going through challenge and trial and difficulty than it is in any other time in our life. And so as a result, when you brush up against trial, when you brush up against difficulty, I want to give you a tactical maneuver. You immediately appreciate it. You immediately turn heavenward and say, God, you are a very present help right now. God, your crocodile alligator mouth is open, and I have more than is sufficient for that which is coming against me right now. And as a result, your faith doesn't stare at the challenge or the trial or the difficulty. Your faith stares at the supply, the treasure room of God that is open to you in this exact situation. You have access to it. So the principle of consolation. The degree of consolation always outweighs the degree of suffering. Always. So no matter the degree of suffering, the degree of consolation will always prove greater. I know I've said this in all sorts of different ways today. However, I want you to recognize this is the biblical principle, which is why we can consider it pure joy which is why we can rejoice when we're falsely accused, which is why we can rejoice in all things, in all circumstances. Because our God supplies us with everything we need to triumph in every challenge, which means every challenge is merely an opportunity to see him triumph in our life, which is the way a Christian thinks, which is why we are the happiest people on earth we get greater trials than the world around us. We do. I don't know if you've ever heard my, my statement on this. I've probably given it a hundred times throughout Ellerslie history. But every single one of us, is, if we're a human, we get trials. They just sort of come with the human package. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you get bonus trials. Yeah, I know. That's quite the sales point for people to come to Christ, isn't it? Unless you know what comes out of those bonus trials, right? If you're a leader in and amongst the church of believers you get bonus, bonus. And there's a few of you in here that know exactly what I mean by that. It's like you immediately begin to think, it's like, God, I'm thinking of downgrading my position so I don't stick my head up out of the trench. You know, when the enemy's shooting bullets at you, there's a trench and you hide behind it. But a leader, you know, it's like they, they, God's sort of lifting them up and like, uh, God, this is a little uncomfortable. They got a sight straight on me. And he's like, I'm watching out for you. Yeah, but it's sort of uncomfortable. They're aiming that gun right at me. And so there's a tendency to want to get away from leadership because leadership adds a bonus, bonus quality. But the same thing is true with moving forward in your Christian life. You just take a step forward. You start sharing Jesus with the world around you and you're gonna notice that your difficulty levels will increase. Now, that could sound like a negative to you, and it's like your justification for why you don't do it. However, a message like this is supposed to help you convert your understanding to say, actually, it's a good thing when my difficulty levels are increasing, even though you yourself don't need to sponsor an increase of your difficulty levels. And when they do increase, you need to recognize that you are gaining a greater consolation a greater intimacy with your God, a greater power for doing the things that you're called to. The Ludi family. By the way, that's what has been sponsored by this love story. This love story that we've called Barracks 28 gave rise to this whole family. 
And there's like eight of us now. And it's quite the family. I, I look at our family, I don't know, we're like a combo between like a Jewish family and an Italian family. And yet we're neither Jewish nor Italian. So I'm not sure what we are. You know, it's just like, it's its, its own ethnicity altogether. It's known as Ludi. Uh, it's the Ludi ethnicity, which is sort of like Jewish and Italian, where it's a very loud home, you know, when, when you hang out with us. We do a lot of laughing. Uh, and daddy has a little German in him. We're, our, my ethnicity is Ludi, but I have some German in me. And my German has a tendency to want to run the house, you know, uh, to be very disciplined. And as when I went through World War I uh, series, I recognized that Germans don't always produce the great, uh, greatest of impact on the world, and they need to be tempered a little. You know, they've led, it led to World War I and World War II. Thank you, Germans. And so uh, I've recognized I need a little more Jamaican in me. So that's what the Ludi House is working on. We're working on the blend of German-Jamaican. I think that's going to be the perfect mix. Uh, so, but the Ludi family, one of the things that we have prayed for for years, we, we need to sponsor this afresh in our home because we, we, we had a tradition, we always had an impossible prayer that each of the kids had. In other words, if it was a possible prayer, it's like we pray those all the time. But what we want to specialize in is going after impossible things. And so I don't remember if it was Harper's impossible prayer, but it was that the Ludi family would be the happiest family in the entire world. And I see no reason. I mean, I don't know how many of you are praying that prayer, right? So it's like, we may have the edge uh, on you for that. But if this was an Olympic event called, you know, living the Christian life and the, the happiest, most joy-filled, most rejoicing, the, the ones that handle difficulty the best, wouldn't that be a great com uh, competition for us to have? Could you imagine if that was an Olympic event? Tri trials come your way and it's like there's some measurement or test on how you handle it. It would be the ultimate thing for us to begin to recognize that's what we want to be good at. Because if we could immediately flip our circumstances when a challenge comes and we can smile, we can rejoice, and we can believe our God, and it doesn't shake our inner man, it doesn't create the trauma that the enemy is trying to bring, God wants to build us through this. It's like there's two ways of working out in the gym. You know, if I rightly handle the weights with proper form, I get stronger. If I throw a weight at you and it hits you in the head, probably not making you stronger is probably not making me stronger, right? There's a misuse of weights. And that's what the enemy sponsors. He sponsors the misuse where they injure us as opposed to benefit us. You have the ultimate gym membership. Let's embrace the challenges we have because it is going to build us into the saints of God. So this is a picture, by the way, that Harper drew... Oh, she was probably six, maybe, maybe even younger. I'm not positive. Uh, but this is, we had this pasted, we, we copied it, and it's like this upside down notebook paper, right? And it says, the happiest family in the world, it is called the Ludies. And we had this all over the house. I don't know if it was Hudson or Harper that put it up, so every door had this. So when you'd walk out, it's like you're constantly being reminded that you are the happiest family in the world which was very helpful for some of those days where we didn't look like we were the happiest family in the world. But that's what I want. And technically what I want, and I, if, if you remember my list of what I wanted for this church, I want this church to be the happiest church in the world. I just see zero reason why we shouldn't aim higher. Why we shouldn't aim to actually live out what we're talking about here as opposed to just esteeming it and nodding at it and going, oh, that's interesting. Oh, fascinating theological perspective there, Eric. As opposed to, that's what I want. 
I want to handle those challenges, those friction points, those abrasions in my life well. So I want you to tag those abrasions in your life that you have right now. The fleas, the different challenges, the lack of resource, whatever it is. Because there's some of you, the issue isn't finances. The issue is relations, relationships. Some of you, it's not relationships, it's health. Some of you, it is finances. There are little things in our life that can get under our skin, that can bring about a wrong attitude. Those are the very things that are supposed to sponsor the right attitude. Let's go after them. Father, I pray that you would triumph in and through these areas of our life. Lord, I thank you for these 28 years. I thank you for what you have built out of it. But Lord, I'm even more interested in what you're going to do with all of us moving forward. And I ask that these next 28 years be heaven on earth. And Lord, even though the earth is getting darker and the world is going more away from that which is the light, Lord, I pray that the church would triumph in this hour. And I pray that you would grow us up in and through our difficulties so that we could truly be representatives of the King of Kings on this earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.